how many men are infected with the HPV virus. Identifying preventable medical spending. What about those stents that resorb? And using less or fewer antibiotics in people with acute respiratory disease, but improving survival. That's what we're talking about this week on PodMed, the weekly look at the medical headlines from Johns Hopkins. Posted on October 20th, 2017, I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang, professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, president of the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, this week we're going to be looking at three studies from Annals of Internal Medicine and just one from The Lancet across the pond. So why don't we start with that one first? This was a look at wow, can we use something called procalcitonin to assess what antibiotics we're going to use? We're using this to look at people that have acute respiratory diseases or illnesses. It could be caused from a bacterial infection, from a viral infection. It could be an exacerbation of whatever their chronic disease is, like emphysema. And we'd like to have some way of knowing whether it's due to a bacterial infection or not, because that is where we want to target antibiotic therapy. You say, well, if you really can't tell, let's just use antibiotics in all of them. When that happens, we overuse antibiotics. There are side effects associated with it. We end up selecting for bacteria or organisms that are resistant to the antibiotics. So procalcitonin is a prohormone that increases in blood in response to bacterial infections. What this study did was it looked at all the literature that summarized using procalcitonin to decide whether antibiotics ought to be administered and duration of antibiotic therapy. And if we do that, does it improve or does it worsen survival? What they discovered was when they used procalcitonin to guide initiation of antibiotic therapy and duration, it actually reduced mortality by about 17%. It reduced the number of individuals that were on antibiotics, and it also reduced the duration of antibiotics. So this is something that probably ought to be incorporated into everyday guidelines of treating individuals with acute respiratory infections. No kidding. This sounds like a really marvelous advance. And of course, this all falls under that rubric of antibiotic stewardship, which is gaining so much traction in hospitals for sure these days. How troubling is it to obtain a procalcitonin level? Well, it's actually much more ubiquitous now. And what they're going towards is what's called point of care testing. Because right now you have to send a blood sample off and it may take two or three or four hours. And if someone has a serious bacterial infection, you don't want to wait that long. For that reason, many physicians automatically start antibiotics. But if we can do it at a point of care at the bedside and make that available immediately, then that will help to guide therapy immediately as well. This sounds really great. I love those advances. Let's turn from here back then to Annals of Internal Medicine. As I said, the rest of the time we'll be spending there. Something that's near and dear to your heart, and you said you were not surprised by this finding. Of course, I was, because I don't sit on an FDA committee relative to devices. But this was taking a look at resorbable stents. Seemed like such a great idea at the time. Why don't we just put these in and have them go away after the blood vessel stays open? Turns out this is probably not so good. In the United States, we do about 650,000 percutaneous coronary interventions. That is opening an artery up, not by doing surgery, but 90% of the times putting in a stent, a metal scaffold. When you put in that metal scaffold, it lasts a lifetime. And there are some problems associated with that. It can get in the way later if someone needs to have bypass surgery done because you can't attach a graft to that. And it always has the risk of having a clot form at the stent where the metal is. So as a result, companies looked at using what are called bioabsorbable stents made out of polymers that when they were put in the body over the course of three or four years, they would dissolve. The first one was approved in Europe in 2011 and on an FDA panel in which I sat back in 2016. 
it was approved based upon data accumulated over 6 to 12 months after it was put in that looked like it was relatively safe. But subsequent reports have suggested that there's an increased risk of a clot forming in the bioabsorbable stent area in the first year and subsequent years. So what these authors did was an analysis of all the available data. And what they discovered was, in fact, the bioabsorbable stent in the first year, the risk of it having a clot form in it was about 2% the first year and about 1% per year after that, which is about three and a half times higher than our standard metal stents. When that stent clots, individuals are more likely to have a heart attack. The FDA has issued a warning, and interestingly enough, the company has actually pulled this particular stent from the market. Once again, evidence that looking at this post-marketing surveillance and the data that accumulates over time is a really robust way of determining what long-term risk could be. And I, at least, am glad that these kinds of things are going on because, again, what seems like a priori a really great idea sometimes turns out to not be such a great idea. Right. And that's the balance that the FDA plays, potentially life-saving or beneficial devices. We could delay their approval for years, but you don't want to do it too quickly either if it carries a risk. Okay. Speaking of long-term follow-up, let's take a look at this rather distressing data, at least in my mind, about men who are infected with human papillomavirus, or HPV, and their risk for a very specific kind of cancer. When most people think about HPV infections and their association with cancer, we usually think about cervical cancer in women. There are many different types of HPV. Only some of them lead to cancer. But what's become clear is that over the last several decades, there have been a marked increase in oral cancers that have been linked to HPV. An average of about 40,000 cases diagnosed annually in the United States. And interestingly enough, about three-fourths of them are occurring in men. These authors examine the oral HPV infection rates with regard to gender and risk factors by looking at the National Health and Nutrition Examinational Survey, the NHANES data from 2011 to 2014. They measured HPV by doing an oral rinse, a penile swab, and a vaginal swab as well. HPV infection rate is about 11.5% in men and about 3.2% in women. About 11 million men with oral HPV infection and about 3.2 million women. There's a higher incidence of the high-risk HPV in men than women. When they look at risk factors, it was having more partners, that is 16 or more lifetime partners increase your risk. The highest incidence was in African Americans and obviously a higher risk in people that have genital HPV, that they would have oral HPV as well. Having identified this, of course, we know that one thing that can be done about this problem is use of the HPV vaccine. But in men who already have existing infection, they've aged out of their eligibility for the vaccine. What else can we do? Well, Elizabeth, you're right. HPV vaccination is recommended in people under the age of 23. We might look at using vaccination in older individuals. We also need to look at ways of preventing transmission. I guess one question I would have would be that should men self-identify, hey, I've had this number of sexual partners in my life, maybe I ought to be screened. In fact, you bring up a good point. This ought to be something healthcare providers automatically ask. So if you're seeing a doctor and they don't ask you about it, you need to offer that information. I agree with you totally. Okay. Finally then, let's turn to something again, not that I was terribly surprised by, but I'm kind of wondering how we're going to get our arms around it. Preventable spending in the Medicare population on healthcare. 
This has health implications, not only for society, but also for physicians, because the United States healthcare assistance is looking at alternative payment systems. Right now, when physicians see a patient, they get paid upon how many patients they see or how many procedures they do. And the healthcare policy in the U.S. is turning that upside down so that physicians are paid upon the quality of care they provide. So we're looking for ways to decrease what would be called preventable spending. To do this, these investigators looked at Medicare patients to determine the top 10% highest cost patients. In looking at over 6 million Medicare beneficiaries, only about 5% of it looked like it was preventable. It ended up being the elderly, frail patients. Even though those patients only are about 4% of the Medicare population, they were responsible for about 50% of the preventable cost. The next group were the disabled. The preventable expenses associated with the frail elderly individuals amounts to almost $6,600 per person. For the disabled individuals, about $3,300. If we're going to actually bend the health care cost curve, these are the groups that we need to be investing a lot of time in. When you say investing a lot of time, this, of course, is a really scary proposition because does this amount to rationing of medical care so that the frail elderly don't get it and disabled people don't get it? I'm not necessarily advocating for that position, but I think it's an apt point and certainly one that's going to be brought up. That's a great question. When you look at what was considered the preventable health care in the elderly, they were for hospital admissions, for urinary tract infections, dehydration, heart failure, and bacterial pneumonia. Things could be managed as an outpatient. It also means making them less frail as well. We know that physical therapy improves their health outcomes. We don't have to say we're going to ration care. We're just going to prevent their hospital admission by providing more thoughtful care beforehand. The last thing that I would add about this is in an interview I conducted this week relative to a certain type of surgery, the surgeon told me that they're employing a frailty score and that he's seeing that very broadly applied to lots of folks who are contemplating surgery. That frailty score says, wow, the outcome for you is likely to be poor. You're not a great surgical risk. Maybe we shouldn't consider this surgery. Absolutely, Elizabeth. For elective surgeries, that information can be very helpful in helping the physician and patient decide should you have the surgery or not. Furthermore, if it is elective, can we put that patient into some type of therapy that moves them out of that frail category where they're more likely to do well postoperatively? On that note, I'm going to write about the HPV infection rate on the blog this week. That's a look at this week's medical headlines from Johns Hopkins. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all live well.